passage this morning is from Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Ron, if you will have a seat. We are going to be in this psalm today, um, and uh, so I would stay there. We're going to kind of ring it out for what it's worth. Uh, we are looking at a psalm today uh, that, in all honesty, took me a lot of the week to really understand how it goes together. And so uh, there is some work uh, in front of us this morning. Character is destiny. Character is destiny. Uh, this isn't a, uh, a thing that I've heard somewhere. It's something that I actually tell my kids all the time. Every chance that I get, I say, character is destiny. I tell it often to them because as we kind of disciple them in life, I want them to look more like Jesus. I want them to have a, a specific kind of character. But even the phrase is uh, maybe a little misleading. You could take it the wrong way. When I talk about destiny, there's a destination in mind. That's because things like truthfulness, virtues like courage, righteousness, contentment, sobriety, and wisdom are actually the destination. So you could take character as destiny to mean that if you have character, you'll end up in the right place, and that's only uh, partially what I mean. I mean that actually character is the destiny that I want my kids to be at. Having the right uh, college kind of entrance or uh, a prestigious occupation or, or worldly success are not the ends for my children. That's not how I think about them. My uh, children could be uh, in high and lofty places or uh, low servantile places, and if they have character, it will matter a great deal to uh, their mother and I. It's very important to us. Christ-like character is the destination for my children. That's what I want for them. Righteous character, unfortunately, though, is extremely rarely found, especially in leaders. Uh, it, it seems that leadership actually uh, attracts, or people that have poor character, maybe is a better way of saying it, uh, constantly kind of gravitate towards positions of leadership. Now, this isn't something that I had to tell you. A lot of uh, us look at authority. We look at people that uh, kind of gravitate into those areas, and we see all the time people that lack character. Now, I could easily be talking about, like, national leaders or politicians. I could be talking about CEOs. I could be talking about your boss, and it's something that you might know kind of uh, instinctually. I could be talking about cultural influencers, people that seek to actually kind of shape our culture. But here's the truth. This morning, and the purposes and for our purposes as the church, I've got to tell you that's not actually who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the church. 
It's a sad reality, but what we find, even maybe especially within the church, are people uh, finding positions of leadership without character, certainly without deep kind of Christ-like character. All of us could make a list of uh, church leaders that we've paid attention to or seen, and we could also note something about their kind of fall from grace Uh, some sort of downfall that happened for them personally within their character that became very public. We could name people that we know, we're not going to this morning, but we could name people that lacked character. But here's the thing, I don't actually even necessarily mean national Christian leaders. Plenty of us have come from churches, individual churches, where youth ministers or uh, lead pastors or an elder or somebody that we were paying attention to, even loved and learned a lot from, fell. Fell into sin, grievous sin, lacked character. So here, here's the truth about all of this. I think that we need to ask and, and, and be really honest about that reality. I want for us to be real about this situation. I want for us to be real about the doubts and distrust that we are left with. Many are coming into even this church having uh, filed out of a church where people lacked character. And so you carry with you some of those bruises, some of those marks. And so we've got to ask a few questions this morning. How do we actually process this? Where is our hope for those of us who feel insecure because we've had leaders fail in their character time and time again? We've got to ask a question, why would God let this happen in his church? And what I think that actually uh, Psalm 125 gives us is not just in this area, but in many areas where we need some sort of confidence, we get a reorientation to a sure confidence in this. God's forever people abide in his forever protection, enjoying his forever peace. God's forever people Abide in his forever protection, enjoying his forever peace. That's what Psalm 125 tells us this morning, and it has something to do with what we just talked about. But we've got to kind of take a road of discovery here this morning. The first thing that we've got to understand is the picture that this psalm is painting for us. We've got to get the pick. We've got to get the picture. The second thing that we've got to understand is something about righteous rule. And then finally, what we're going to end with this morning is we're going to end in understanding how to enjoy God's goodness. That's kind of the train track, the stations along the way for us this morning. Now, you have uh, probably been with us, but for those who haven't been, we're actually in a context. We're not just taking the psalm kind of as its own. We're stepping through the psalms of ascent. We started with Psalm 120. We're going to be going here for another, uh, I think, seven weeks or so through those psalms. And what we found is, is that at the very beginning, there is a man who wants to worship, and he needs to get out and go up. He needs to set his eyes on Jerusalem, and he's actually protected on the journey on his way up to this city of worship. But the last few weeks, we've actually hit a theme once he's come into this city of worship, and it's dealing with the realities of life. This theme actually is uh, teaching us. We are learning how to trust in the midst of adversity. We lift up our eyes, we find help in the name amidst persecution and danger, 
And this week is no different. We find something of truth that helps us deal with the travails of life. So we want to fight the travails of the here and now with eternally hopeful truths answered completely in Jesus. And you might go, I didn't see Jesus anywhere in this text. Let us go there and discover him. But the first thing that we've got to do is get the picture. We've got to see the picture that's actually in this text. So if you would, look at verse 1 with me. It says, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. So we're already getting like a mental picture. You can even close your eyes if you want to during this section and just picture what it is that the psalmist is trying to tell us. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. So we want to ask a question of this verse. Who is the psalmist talking about? Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Well, this would have been a Jewish writer that was writing to Jewish travelers who were going up into worship. And so when we hear a thing like Mount Zion, we've got to say, well, this was written for Jews. And certainly it was. It was written by a Jew for a Jew to sing on their way up to worship in Jerusalem. But this verse actually says something very specific. It says, those who trust in the Lord. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. This psalm is for anyone who puts their trust in the Lord. This is for faithful people. This is for people who place their faith on the Lord. So what we want to understand here right from the get-go is that this is not only about Old Testament Israelites. It's about you. If you place your faith in the Lord, this psalm is actually for you this morning. This psalm tells us that those who place their faith in the Lord are first like a mountain. They're like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. Now, what is Mount Zion? That sounds, maybe you've heard those words before, but you're not really totally sure what that even means. Jerusalem, the city, was actually built on a hill. Don't picture Mount Everest with like a city up on top, but it was this big, long, sloping hill that you would have had to go up to. We've actually talked about this in recent weeks. So, what this psalmist is saying is that you, if you trust in the Lord, as a group, we are like a mountain with a city on top of it. You are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. This is the hill that Jerusalem was built on. This hill that worshipers had to march and step with the Spirit all the way up. The mountain that is, by the way, for the purposes this morning, is still there. It hasn't moved anywhere. Now, for those of us who go, yeah, mountains can actually move, by the way. Isn't that true? We have uh, volcanoes that erupt. We have landslides that, uh, we have mountains that erode. We have tectonic plates that move continents away from one another. So maybe this hill isn't still there. It is still there. It's actually still there. You could go with this set of psalms and literally pray and sing these songs up this hill that is still in existence. So man goes about a a lot of different processes and building things for their lifetime. I want to build a home that lasts my lifetime. Maybe I could even give it uh, to my children. I want to build a desk that I could use. We go about the process of building things, but those things deteriorate. Here, we get a much more sure image of what you are like. You're like a mountain. You're like a mountain that abides and lasts forever. 
So what we need to understand is that God's people are established like this city on an unmovable hill. But there's a second part to this word picture that we're getting, and it's in verse 2. It says that not only are those who trust in the Lord like Mount Zion, which doesn't, which abides and lasts forever, it also says, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. So there are, actually, if you go to Jerusalem, you can see the hill that uh, Jerusalem was built on. But what you can also see are the hills around it. So what we get in this word picture for us is that you are like this steadfast mountain, but that you are actually surrounded by the mountain of God's protection. That there are mountains that are literally protecting this mountain in the center, and they are sure They are abiding, they are steadfast, they are founded around you, they completely surround you. So the picture that we're getting this morning is that you are like a mountain and God's protection is like mountains all around you. He surrounds you. I wonder if you've ever uh, driven up uh, to Colorado years ago, clearly. I used to go on hiking trips. I, I used to go, I loved going up to Colorado. Uh, we, it didn't take all that much. A friend would have to go, hey, let's go to Colorado. And we'd just go up. And there was this place as we were kind of headed up towards uh, the Collegiate Peaks, uh, Salida, where you would drive drive through this kind of barren land, and there were just mountains surrounding you. You had to go through mountains to get there. There was a plain, and then there were just mountains all the way around. If you were to build something right in the middle of it, you would have just these peaks of mountains just completely surrounding you. Here in this image, you get this idea of a secure place, mountains just surrounding you. Those mountains aren't literal. They are the figurative protection of God, which surrounds you in a very sure and steadfast and eternal way. So the picture that we get is that God's people are a mountain surrounded by God's mountains of protection. And then we need to ask a question of these verses. How long can this be true? Can I ever not be protected by these mountains? Can I ever not be a part of the mountain? And this verse very sweetly answers the question of how long. Those who trust God's people are like a mountain which cannot be moved but abides how long? Forever. Forever. For for those of you who are uh, operating in the midst of a, a hurtful or even like broken relationship and you're just wondering how long it can hold on, And you think forever sounds like a really, really long time. And you know that the things that you put your hand to might uh, deteriorate before your very eyes. What God says to you this morning is that your relationship with me is sure. How long? Forever. But then he goes on to say this about the mountains of God. God's mountains of protection surround his people from this time forth and forevermore. It's almost as though the Spirit of God speaking through the psalmist wants you to know that your place, your protection as a part of God's people is everlasting. It's never going to be moved. As sure as a mountain sits there and abides, that's the way that you will abide in the midst of God's protection. God's forever people abide in his forever protection. We we get the sense that there is an immovable steadfastness that can only be described by a mountain. I wonder if you can see it in your mind's eye. So those who trust 
are like a mountain hemmed in by God's mountain of protection. But then the verses, starting in verse 3, throw us, throw me for a loop. It says the word for. So he's giving us this word picture, but then he says that there's uh, something that all of this is for. And what we need to understand is that there is a principle that we are about to be taught about that has something to do with righteous rule. Look with me, verse 3. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous. Okay? That's, anybody know just right offhand what that means? I'll be totally honest with you. I spent probably four or five days this week thinking that that verse meant something that I don't now think that it means. It's a little complicated. We have to actually get underneath all of this. What we understood from this first picture is that God protects us from without. He builds these strong, mountainous walls of protection around us, and nothing's getting in. But what we discover here is that there might be something within Not without, but within. Let's discover this together. What does this mean? It says the scepter of wickedness. Very simply, I just want to state this. I think what it means is evil authority. The scepter, that's something that's a a sign of authority. It's something that can be used for authority. A scepter of wickedness. So this is evil authority shall not rest. So it won't actually come down on, it won't impose itself on the land allotted to the righteous. We've already discussed what that is. That's Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, that's his people, that's the people that place their faith in him. And then it says the word lest. And it'd be really easy to mistake that word. I did. But what this thing, I think, is saying is, is that the evil scepter is not going to rest on God's people unless, unless. So, so, from without, we're protected from without. If you want to know what we need to be protected from within about, you need to understand that this is saying, unless, lest the righteous shall stretch out their hands to do wrong. How do we take this? We're protected from without and protected from within unless the people that are God's people in the midst of his mountainous protection choose to be disobedient. What we understand is is that the danger might be inside. The call is coming from the inside of the house. That's not a reference that anybody in this room is going to get, is it? No? Scream? Okay. Missed that one. Okay. The call might be inside. The danger might be actually inside. That's a part of God's people. So how do we take this? How do we understand this? What we need to do is say, You are God's forever people, surrounded by God's forever protection, and the evil authority cannot assail you from uh, from outside unless you choose to foster it by way of disobedience from within. That's what I think that this verse is trying to warn us about. But here's where the goodness of the gospel takes root for us, because there's protection inside too. It's not just the mountains of protection outside. There's something that God is doing. There's a righteous rule that's happening inside that's going to protect us as well. Here's the truth, and here's what we know. 
This verse says, unless you choose to foster it, unless you choose to stretch out your hand and do wrong, unless God's people choose to stretch out their hands and do wrong, and here's what the gospel has to say about this. You did stretch out your hand. You did do wrong. We, as God's people, do wrong. We invite sin into the camp. The leaven is sprinkled in. The danger is inside, and so there has to be something that's done about it. And here's the wordplay that I think that we get to look at as Christians and uh, not eisegete, not uh, you know, impose on a text, but that we actually get to revel in the creativity of God's word here. I'm going to try as best I can to prove it to you. We who stretch our hands out to do wrong need a righteous ruler to stretch out his hands to do right. And of course, that's exactly what Jesus did on the cross. When you reach your hand out to do evil, to do wrong, and the scepter of uh, wickedness comes down upon you, there is one who stands in the place and stretches out his arms to do right, to make you right, to justify you. And those arms, when they are stretched out, are nailed to a cross in order to pay for the sins that we invited in that would poison the well, that would ruin God's people, Jesus is the one that comes and stands firmly in the gap at the cost of his own life. Jesus at the cross stretches out his hands, takes on the scepter of wickedness in order to restore right rule in God's people. There's a sermon in uh, early Christendom that uh, gets preached, and I think it has something, it uses some of the same language here that I think we actually get to look back on. It says this, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried. His tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all of the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So when we ask the question of what about these unrighteous rulers that are in our midst? What about us, we ourselves, who are inviting sin into the camp? Who's going to do something about it? Is it going to be national leaders? Lord, help us if we put our trust in them. It would be nice to see uh, national leaders actually promote righteousness in our land, but we do not rely on that. What about your boss at work who, uh, who invites maybe you to uh, cheat or lie or steal or uh, creates a culture of division and uh, hurt and invites sin to kind of mingle its way into the culture that you are working in and you get caught up in it and you sin? It'd be nice to have righteous bosses, wouldn't it? 
It would be wonderful to see men of character step up and lead the bride of Christ with true depth, steadfastness, righteousness. But in the midst of all of that failure, what we truly need is a righteous ruler. A righteous ruler. When we can't do it, we need one to come in and not just put the mountains of God's protection from without, but actually come in and give their lives to serve the people, to produce righteousness there in that midst and to protect his people from within, to heal and redeem and restore his people from within. And that's exactly what we get in Jesus Christ. David, this uh, passage from Acts said, was a good king, but he died. He could not save his people from sin. Only Jesus could be our right ruler and produce righteousness in his people and protect us from waywardness and sin. God's forever people through Jesus have forever protection both from without and from within. So here's here's where we want to land this morning. We want to ask the question, now what? Because again, this psalm is a little strange to us. It's painting a picture. It's talking about the ways that uh, sin might mingle itself into uh, and destroy his people. It talks about how we might be protected by a righteous ruler, but then it does something that we uh, may not anticipate. It tells us that we should enjoy God's goodness. Verse 4, join with me there. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, to those who are upright in heart. What does that mean? Maybe even for some of us, we just go, do good to the good people, the people that are upright of heart. I thought we just said that we're not upright of heart, that we're not good inherently. For many of us, we want to run to Romans chapter 3 that says, there is no one righteous, no, not one, that together we have actually become worthless in our sin, that no one seeks or understands God, and that we have fallen into sin right? That we are the ones that are actually not good. No one's good. Not even one. And we just go, well, how, how can we say, do good to me, Father, for I am good? How can we say that? And of course, the answer is in Jesus Christ. Does asking God to do good uh, to the people who are good, to the upright, feel wrong? What I want to suggest this morning is that uh, you're taking Romans 3 and you're applying it to all of Christian life and you're forgetting that there is this amazing truth that comes in Romans uh, 4 and 5 and 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 through the end of the book, that there is this redemptive story and that we don't need to remain in Romans 3 that we actually do become conquerors in Christ, that there is actually good that is given to us, that we are justified in Christ, that we are adopted into God's family through Christ, that we are not only uh, justified and adopted, but then we are sanctified, that we are made to look more like Jesus, that we are actually made good, and that one day we will be glorified forever. What an amazing truth. Don't just stay at that place of justification and go, I'm evil, I'm wicked, I'm sinful. Piling on, remember that God does actually justify you and that in Christ there is good in you, that you are being made good, that one day you will be completely glorified. And then let us read this passage that says, do good 
O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their heart. And we get to actually say that. And we don't get to second guess ourselves and be like, I'm going to spend all of my time making sure that you know that I'm repentant. We actually get to embrace the goodness that God has given us. Not that you have merited, not that you have worked out, not that you are doing in yourself, but that God has actually given you, implanted in you, created in you, recreated you in Jesus Christ. Father, do good to those people who are in your grace and who your grace has made good. That's what we hear here. Does it feel greedy? Does it feel wrong? Let me, let me give you a purpose behind this. I don't want to just tell you, hey, plea for God's goodness without telling you what I think is actually happening here. Here we see the purpose of this plea is the preservation and the protection of God's people from the unrighteous scepter of the wickedness. Okay, here's what I mean by that. It's okay to ask God to protect his people. It's okay to ask God to protect his people. We can actually say, God, do good to your people. There are unrighteous rulers out there. Your boss may be oppressing you. You may have a heavy-handed spouse. It is okay to ask God for his protection. Do you get it? It's okay to ask for good things from a good, good father. The second thing that I think we see is that the purpose of this plea is to pronounce peace on God's people. See, we see us saying, God, do good Do good to those whom your grace has made good. But then we actually see at the end of all of this that his people are actually to enjoy peace. Verse 6 says this, But those who turn aside to their crooked ways before the Lord, the Lord will lead them away with the evildoers. But then it says very specifically, have peace. The final word of this psalm is peace. The final word every morning when City Church gathers is peace. We send you out in peace. We want to welcome you with grace. We want to send you out with peace. The peace of God is everlasting. It is forever and it is for you. And it says that those who actually turn aside to their crooked ways, the people that turn away from the Lord will actually be led away with evildoers. But those who stay in faith, the mountain of God will experience peace and protection. God will not stand for his protected people to endure the authority of unprincipled and crooked leaders. Okay, when you hear about another pastor falling down, I want at least part of you, that part of you that's not just simply grieving, to realize that actually that's God's grace to his people. It might hurt, it might be uncomfortable, it might be embarrassing, but the truth is, is that God needs to purify his people. We need the people that are leading, who are without character, to be exercised from our community. And you're like, Chris, that is harsh language. The truth is, is that God's kindness is actually given to us in the midst of either repentance or taking people that do not have fellowship with God away from his people. That's not what I'm doing. It's not what I'm saying. It's what God does. And we should see it as a grace. 
God will purify his people, and he will not stand to see his protected people endure the authority of unprincipled and crooked leaders. I think that that's what verse 6 is trying to say. The the second thing that it's trying to say is, is that God will expose those who lack character, and their destiny will be with evildoers. That is pretty weighty. Do any of you aspire to leadership, eldership? Do any of you aspire to lead God's people? I hope so. We need it. Here at City Church, we need it. The churches across this city need it. We need to send people out to plant churches. We need people of character going and bearing and proclaiming God's word to people who do not know it and building enclaves, little platoons of God's people all over this world that God is revealing his righteous reconciliation and redemption every day. We need those kinds of leaders. But God will not stand for those who are meaning to harm his people and will expose those who lack character. And I'm very, very aware that this sermon, this sermon is exhibit A if I should ever fall into sin. I'm a sinner all the time, but by God's grace, I, I strive to have the kind of character that I want to deliver to my kids, that I want to be a blessing to this body. I fail all the time at this, but I ask for God's goodness. Do good, do good to me, O Lord. Pray that you would pray that for me, for my family. I pray that you would pray it for one another. And I pray that you would ask God to expose those people who lack character because their destiny will be with the evildoers. But in doing that, it says that he brings peace. Peace be upon Israel. That's the final proclamation of this verse. That's where we're going to rest this morning. God's forever people abide in his forever protection, enjoying his forever peace. Man, I hope that that's a blessing. I hope that that's the message that you needed to hear this morning. I hope that a message of peace and enjoyment, of protection, is something that you uh, just hold on to this morning because that's what God is trying to deliver us to. How do we apply this? Well, well, there's this uh, specific language that's used in here about turning aside and abiding. I I want to actually kind of uh, say that in a way that I hope that we can actually take away with us. You can turn aside, you can turn aside to your sin, or you can turn and abide. You can turn and abide to sin, or you can abide with him. I want to remind you of the the words of verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. It abides forever. What does abide mean? I want you to think about that in the context of this mountain. How does a mountain abide? Have you ever wondered that? It's like there's, there's this foundation of the earth's crust, and there's this mountain that just abides there. And that's what you're being called to do. But, but the, the word abide should, for us, at some level, like ring some gospel bells, where Jesus says in John chapter 15 that we are to abide. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. John 15 says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Does that sound familiar? It like lines up. Do good. 
Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, who you are making good by your grace. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my, uh, in my love that your joy may be full. That's what John 15 says. So I want to add to this word picture that Psalms is trying to paint for us this morning. If we are abiding, if we are an abiding mountain, what is it that we're rested on? It's the love of Jesus. I want this morning, if you walked in here weary, if you walked in here impatient with life, if you walked in here having been oppressed by unrighteous rulers, I want you to see yourself as a mountain, immovable, forever, abiding in God's perfect love for you in Jesus Christ. As my Father has loved me, so, and hear Jesus say this to you, I have loved you, abide like a mountain in my love, that your joy may be full. What I want to accomplish this morning, I'll just tell you outright, is to give you an encouraging picture that I hope uh, just sits with you for the rest of this week of an abiding on the bedrock of God's love. And I want for you to have rest in our righteous, rescuing ruler. I'm going to pray that over you this morning. God and Father of grace, you have sent us a rescuer, and he is righteous. He doesn't only place mountains of your protection from without. He comes within the camp. He roots sin out. He takes it on himself. He stretches out his hands and dies for it. But then he raises gloriously from the grave. He ascends into heaven and says, he will be back to this mountain. And when he comes punishment of sin and evildoers will come with him, and a new heaven and new earth will descend onto this mountain that we might be with him, abiding forever. God and Father, your forever people abide in your forever protection and want to enjoy your forever peace. And so, Father, I pray that you would allow for City Church to be a place of peace, and to be a place of enjoyment. God and Father, as we seek a revival of joyful worship, I pray that you would give joy to the people of City Church, that you would give rest and satisfaction and steadfastness, the kind of steadfastness that can only be described to us in the language of mountains. God and Father, would you do that in us? Would you accomplish that for us? Would you convince our hearts of it? And would you allow for us to sing with that kind of confidence this morning because of your son, Jesus? And it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen.